You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church Midtown. This is our Advent series, Wrapped in Flesh. Well, peace be with you. What a joy it is to be with you all uh, this morning uh, to worship our one true and living God. For those who are watching online, we are uh, glad that you are watching and we pray that all is well with your soul. Uh, We hope that you stay safe and we can't wait uh, to see you again in person. And thank you, uh, Pastor Robert, for the wonderful uh, liturgy and just for uh, the reminder of the opportunity that we have to give to continue to uh, not only impact our church and our city, uh, but other churches that we've been able to uh, plant and to start. Um, I'm going to open us up with a word of prayer. And uh, specifically, I'm going to pray for one of our worship leaders who had a a medical emergency just before uh, doing the last service and was rushed to the hospital. He's doing fine. It's non-COVID related. Um, But I'm going to ask you to just silence your heart and to uh, pray for uh, Brother Ryan with me. Mm, Father, as we enter into this Advent season, the word Advent meaning coming, we, our hearts cry, Maranatha. Lord, come, Jesus. As we enter into the season of hope, of love, of peace and joy, we recognize that only you can give us those things. And so, Father, I pray, Lord, that through your word that we would see Jesus more clearly. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable to you. I pray that these your people would have hearts, Lord, that are soft and ready to receive. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, even now to put away anything that would hinder us from having fertile soil. I pray, Lord, for Ryan. I thank you for his serving the church and playing the drums earlier. I pray, Lord, that you would just heal his body and, and meet him where he is. We thank you for Raymond and him being on call to, to serve. And, and for all those who are here today, Lord, wanting to serve you and worship you in spirit and in truth. And we pray for those online, Lord, that you would just fill their heart with shalom. Just give them peace like only you can. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, many of us have been there before. It's Christmas morning, and even though it's a holiday and it's a time to be excited because we know the true reason for the season, uh, we're a little more lethargic. We go down maybe to open a gift or to call a loved one, and the excitement just isn't there. We're not quite Grinch, but we're kind of close. And maybe it's a phone call or maybe it's a a gift that you unpack and unwrap that brings you out of it. Perhaps as you're unwrapping a gift and and just thinking that this is going to be a simple gift, this is not going to be great. After all, you're not a a child anymore. You didn't really have a, a list. You begin to unpack that gift. And as you unpack the gift, you realize that it is a thoughtful gift. It is something that you actually wanted. It's something that 
brings you life. And suddenly overwhelmed with appreciation, the rest of the day goes better than you expected. I don't know if you've ever been there, but I've been there before. Well, today we are starting a new series called uh, about Jesus uh, called Wrapped in Flesh. And today we're going to look at the subject of how the word dwelt among us. And in this series, we are going to unpack John chapter one for three weeks in a row. And if you can't tell, it's just because I only had one cup of coffee, but I am really excited. I'm like thrilled. I I can't remember last time I was this excited to to preach an Advent sermon because we get to slow down as a church. And this year, we're not going to go do topical or or, or go from passage to passage. We're just going to sit in one passage for three weeks, one passage for three weeks. And my hope is, is that if you find yourself as a result of 2020, lethargic or apathetic or uh, lacking in hope, love, joy, or peace, that as we unwrap this rich Christological, theological, beautiful passage that, that centers Jesus as the one who is supreme and, and, and the one who is above all, my prayer is that your heart would become warmed, that your perspective would change, that God even in the midst of a pandemic, would grow deep appreciation in your heart towards Jesus and fill you with all hope. And in order to do that, I want to challenge you in two ways. We can call this the Advent challenge. One, I want to challenge you to just take 10 minutes. That's all it'll take. 10 minutes to read John 1, 1 through 18 slowly every day leading up to Christmas. And if it's hard for you to do something like that, maybe get a a friend to do it along with you. And every day, just to slow down and read the passage, meditate on it. To meditate just simply means to chew on it, to pause afterwards and and, and just think about it. Think about what it says about God. Think about what it uh, teaches you about man. Think about uh, what the Holy Spirit may be inviting you to think, to feel, and to do as a result. But even more, I want to encourage you to put it to memory. Uh, Maybe this isn't a time or a season for you to memorize 18 verses. Maybe it's just five. Pick the verses that stick out to you and just memorize them. Hide that word in your heart so that the Holy Spirit can stir their word in you and and just warm your heart up like a a cold person sitting by a, a warm fire. Okay, And so that's our Advent challenge. How does that sound? Good. All right. Let's do it. I'm believing that the Lord is going to do a mighty, mighty, mighty work. Well, as we look at John 1, uh, today's is going to kind of be almost an overview of some major themes that we're going to see in uh, the chapter. And then we're going to slow down the next two weeks to really go deeper into these concepts. But I think it's really important for us to know just a little bit about the book. The book of John is written by John, the son of Zebedee who was a disciple and a self-proclaiming disciple that Jesus loved, all right? Uh, We see this throughout John's writings that he uh, likes to call himself the disciple that Jesus loves. He's believed to be the disciple that lays his head on Jesus' breast during the Lord's Supper. He wants the other apostles to feel jealous uh, because he believes that he had a special relationship with Jesus. 
Um, so John is writing from personal experience, and he's had time to reflect on the life of Jesus, the works of Jesus, who Jesus is. And this is kind of his magnum opus. This is uh, uh, him writing to the early church to encourage the early church. And we'll see uh, exactly what he's encouraging the early church to do in John chapter 20, verse 30, 31. John 20, 30, 31 says, Jesus performed many other signs uh, in uh, his disciples that, with his disciples that were not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John is writing this book um, to firm up the faith of those who believe and uh, to show those who do not believe uh, this evidence that Jesus is not just the Messiah, but he is the Son of God. And all of the Synoptic Gospels are really getting to that point. We see this in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is writing to the church, and that's what we've been going through, the Gospel of Matthew, and showing that Jesus is the Messiah, one, but that he's more than a son of David. He's also the son of God. And John is doing the same thing. He wants them to believe. And so these are a theme that you'll see throughout. And John has been an eyewitness uh, to these things. Later on, John is going to write 1 John chapter 1, these words. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was revealed and we have seen it and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was the Father and uh, was revealed uh, to us. And so, again, John is writing uh, from experience. This is a historical document. And later on, he writes to church, First John, this is a different letter. And he says, I, I saw Jesus. I touched Jesus. I lived with Jesus and, and this is the reality I learned. And we know that many of the apostles and many of the people who wrote the New Testament were persecuted uh, because of what they believed. Um, they were faithful Jewish men who uh, sometimes lost their families. Some lost their life because they uh, experienced a resurrected Jesus. And now they're recording their experience of him and writing to the early church in essence, telling them to hold on, and for those who are reading the letter, telling them to believe. And so John here is really going to write an a, a amazing a prologue. It is a Christian theology at its best. And in essence, what John is, is going to do is he's going to, to show us that Jesus is God and that Jesus is divine. And in today's day and age, this is a big deal because perhaps now more than any other time in American history, it is okay for you to say that Jesus is a good teacher. It is okay for you to say that Jesus is a miracle worker. It's, it's okay for you to say that Jesus was a great philosopher, but the rubber hits the road the moment that you say that Jesus is God. And not only that Jesus is God, but that Jesus is the only way to God. And not only that Jesus is God and the only way to God, but that Jesus has always been God and will never cease to be God. We stay in a very pluralistic society in which claims of divinity make you narrow-minded, 
uh, make you look cold and almost makes you uh, seem like you're crazy. But Christians for over 2,000 years have believed that Jesus is divine, that he is God. And the reason that they have believed that is because of eyewitnesses who saw Jesus defeat death. And because Jesus himself claimed to be God and did things that no other human being consistently did. And John is going to record this and he's going to go take a different approach. We saw in Matthew that Matthew starts with the genealogy of Jesus, tracing Jesus's lineage back to the line of Judah, back to David. But John's not going to start there. John's going to start at a more philosophical level. He's going to start in a way that would connect to Greeks and Jews by discussing something called the Logos or the Word. And so in verse one, he says, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created uh, that has been created. And so what is John doing when he talks about the word? What does that mean? Well, William Cook and his commentary on John, and we have this on the screen, writes a a very short synopsis that helps us to wrap our mind around this concept of the word. He writes the term logos, which in our English is translated as word, has a conceptual background both in Greek philosophy and Judaism. In Greek philosophy, the logos referred not only to the spoken word, but also to the unspoken word still in the mind reason. And this was a big point that uh, people like Plato and others uh, would would draw out, that there's a supreme um, being um, and we can't quite know him, uh, but he is, is, is there and he is the, uh, the supreme being of, of, of logic and reason. But when applied to the universe, it referred to the rational principle that brought order and unity into the cosmos. It's most likely that John's primary conceptual background is the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, we have this idea of, of the word. In the Old Testament, God's word is the dynamic force of his will. So we see this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, for example. In the beginning was the Word, right? Um, I'm sorry, in the beginning, God created the world, right? And we know that God did it by what? Speaking over and over in Genesis. God spoke and it became. God created the heavens and the earth by his spoken word. God speaks and his will is accomplished. Isaiah 55, verse 11. What God says, it happens. It doesn't come back to him void. John was fully aware that the term will resonate with both his Jewish and Gentile readers. So John is coming at a very uh, philosophical level in order to to say, hey, listen, Greeks, Gentiles, who talk about this this logos, this world, this word, this supreme being who kind of controls all the universe and which you guys aren't sure who he is. Let me tell you, in the beginning was the word. The word. So whatever this logos is, the word is preexistent. And the word was with God. Whatever this logos, this word was, it was present with God. And the word was God. Now that's a huge claim that this word that created all things is actually God. And not only was the word God, but the word is the author and creator of all things. In fact, look at your Bibles. Verse three, all things were created through him and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Notice how John double downs on this. He says this in the positive and then in the negative. All things were created. All things were created through him. 
And apart from him, not one thing, not one single thing that was created, not one single thing that was created, was created apart from him. And so we learn in verse 14, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We, we learn in verse 14 that the word is, is hinting at, it is Jesus. And in verse 17, it's more explicit that the word, this, uh, create, this, this being who has always been, who was always with God, who has created all things is Jesus Christ himself. So Jesus, we learn, is preexistent. Before creation was, he was. Jesus, we learn, is present with God. Jesus, we learn, created all things. When God said, let there be light, that was Jesus creating light. When, when God uh, separated the, the waters from the land, that was Jesus creating. Every single part of creation is through Jesus. In fact, uh, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, we got some great passages all throughout Scripture that point to, to who, Jesus, who Jesus is. Jesus created all things because Jesus is God. These are bold claims that's been made by John, claims that could have gotten him stoned by his other Jewish uh, uh, kinsmen who had not yet put their faith in Jesus Christ. This would have been blasphemy because it is the saying that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. And as Christians, we believe that there is one God. God is three persons. Each person is fully God. God, the Father, is not God the Son. God the Son is not the Holy Spirit. Each person are distinct persons, but they share the same substance and essence. Each is fully God. Jesus always was. Now, this, of course, is problematic. And it has been problematic because it's mysterious. It's a, a beautiful doctrine, but it's a mysterious doctrine. It's something that we can't wrap our mind around because there's no other being like God. There's no other being that is three in oneness. And some people, uh, instead of embracing this, and it's not a, a, a contradiction, it's just simply a mystery. They try to read the Bible and, uh, and create a, a doctrine that is, is safe and containable and to them more logical. And some of you all have, have met people like that who say, no, Jesus isn't God. But rather, Jesus is a supreme being. He's the highest of all created beings. And some of you on a Saturday morning have been at home in your pajamas, enjoying a quiet day. And all of a sudden, you heard a knock at your door. And you look out and there's a group of people who are all very pleasant and kind. And you think that they're selling Girl Scout cookies and then they want to tell you about their version of Jesus, right? And this is a group that we call the Jehovah Witnesses. And one thing I love about, uh, uh, and I respect, let me say I respect about Jehovah Witnesses is that they are very zealous people. Uh, they believe what they believe, but they don't believe it according to knowledge of God's word. And what they believe is that Jesus is a created being. They believe that Jesus is Michael, the archangel from the Old Testament. 
and that in the New Testament, he was brought forth as, 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 as who we have now, who is, is Jesus. And so they have this warped theology on the Trinity, on the Holy Spirit, and on who, who Jesus is. Um, and this is very problematic. In fact, this puts them outside of the Christian faith because as Christians, we know that Jesus is fully man, the son of David, and fully God, the son of God. But you know, they say that nothing new is under the, under the sun, right? And every, uh, just about every heresy we uh, hear today has its, its roots into uh, uh, the, the early centuries after the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, in 325 AD, this was a big issue. There's a big beef going on in the Eastern world. The Western world had settled it years before with a great theologian by the name of Tertullian, who took what the Bible teaches about the Trinity and made it very plain and, uh, and, 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 and kind of spelled it out for Christians who were having a difficult time uh, wrestling with Jesus being both human and being uh, fully God. And so what Tertullian did is he showed what the Bible teaches. He didn't create something. He just said, this is what the Bible teaches. This is why philosophically it's not a contradiction. And here is why we worship Jesus God. Well, in the Eastern church, there was a, a bit more controversy. There was a man by the name of Arian. And Arian was a deacon um, and a, uh, in Egypt. And he was a very good speaker, very convincing. And Arian began to teach that, uh, the, that Jesus was not divine, that Jesus is the uh, highest of the created order. And there were other bishops and pastors who were like, this is, a, this is a problem. And so he debated back and forth with a man by the name of Alexander. Around the same time, uh, Constantine, who was the emperor of the Roman uh, Empire, um, had, a, had been converted at best or had an experience that led him to believe um, that the Christian way was the best way for the Roman Empire. And because he had this breakthrough of heart, um, he did not want the church to kind of uh, be torn apart from the inside out with a doctrine. So what he did is he had all the bishops and elders and pastors uh, come to a place that is in modern day Turkey uh, called back then uh, Nicaea. And he had all the best thinkers of the church come together to debate Arian on who Jesus is in essence. And this was incredible because just years prior, these same bishops, over 300 of them, were being persecuted for what they believed about Jesus by the Roman Empire. Some of them came into this, uh, this, this conference, so to speak, um, lamed because they had eyes plucked out, because they had limbs cut off for what they believed. And now the emperor of Rome paid their way to travel to Nicaea to talk about who is Jesus. Legend had it that there was one guy there by the name of St. Nicholas. And in the middle of the debate, though Arius is not, uh, Arian is not, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, speaking himself, he has someone else representing only bishops and elders and pastors could talk during the time. St. Nicholas gets up from across the room, legend has it, and uh, he slaps Arius. Arian, because he's so upset at what he's teaching, all right? 
Um, I wonder if he told him Merry Christmas afterwards, you know? <laughs> but he was so passionate about who Jesus was that he just got upset. He just walked and just slapped him. That's what legend has it, all right? I'm not telling you to slap people who knock on your door um, and who are saying that Jesus is not, the, not God, all right? That'll get you in trouble and you'll probably come under church discipline here. I'm dragging on. That wasn't a part of my manuscript, but there you go. Merry Christmas, all right? A little church history for you. But what ends up happening um, is they walk away, these bishops, these elders of the early church, creating a clear document and teaching on who Jesus is. And this is called the Nicaea Creed. I want to put it on the screen for you real quick. And it's a beautiful doctrine in which they hold uh, all of these great teachings about Jesus in the Bible together. And they communicate it in a clear way. And this is what we call Christian orthodoxy, which has been believed by the church for a a couple thousands of years. And even before that, after the resurrection of Jesus, but they neatly put it together. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ. Think about this. Right in these words in Rome right? One Lord, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, right? And he always was uh, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. He was never made. He always was God. Consubstantial with the Father, through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. Now, you can go and Google the Nicene Creed and look up the entire document. It's absolutely beautiful. And I want to encourage you to to, to put it to memory as well. Um, That's something I've started to work on myself. Um, and, and, And the reason that this is important is as this, this phrase says, is that Jesus came to the earth to save us. And if you take away the divinity of Jesus, if you take away the fact that he is preexistent, that he was present with God, that he created all things, and that he is God, right? And when we talk about um, what he did for us on the cross or his, his death, it becomes Uh, Null and void because he doesn't undo what the first Adam did, which was sin. And if he's not God, then he wasn't sinless. And there's no redemption. There's no ransom for our sin. There's no hope. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to look at this incredible chapter and remind ourselves that we believe what Millions of Christians throughout the centuries have believed that Jesus is not simply a good teacher, the Messiah, or a great rabbi. He is God himself. And there's two things, this Advent, that uh, themes that we're going to see running throughout this as Jesus is the Word. The first is this theme of life, and the second is this theme of light. Look at your Bibles. In him was life, and that life was the light of man. When we talk about Jesus as the divine word, as God himself, we're saying that that Jesus is the author of life. In fact, in John chapter 3, we're going to see Jesus talking to a man by the name of Nicodemus. 
And Jesus is going to tell Nicodemus, who was a spiritual leader of Israel, as he is answering his questions, that in order to be a part of the kingdom of God, that Nicodemus must be born again. That in order to be a part of God's family, you have to be reborn. And the only way you do that, John says in John chapter 3, 16, is by by believing that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. John 17 and 3 records this. This is eternal life, Jesus said, that they may know you, the only true God, the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. True life is found in Christ and Christ alone. If you feel dead on the inside, I'm telling you that the only way to experience life is by placing your faith in Jesus Christ, who is God and who became a man so that we might be free from the wrath of God have our sins past, present, and future forgiven. And Jesus came not just to save us from God's wrath, but to save us to something. And that too is true life, what Jesus is going to call abundant life. Later in John chapter 14, Jesus is going to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In fact, Jesus throughout the gospel of John, John shows us that this is what Jesus came preaching. In the book of John, we have seven I am statements. Jesus preaches in John 6. He says, I am the bread of life. As just as essential as bread is to life, I am. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection. I am the way, the truth, and the light. I am the true vine. Ego imi. This is the divine covenant name of God that God introduced in the Old Testament to Moses. I am that I am. That's who you tell Pharaoh that I am. I am. And Jesus comes and John records throughout his ministry, he is preaching to the crowds, I am. And then we see that he backs this up with seven signs, turning water into wine, healing a sick boy, healing a paralyzed man, feeding the 5,000 with two fish and five loaves, healing a blind man, raising Lazarus from the dead, and raising himself from the dead. But notice those two I am's. I am the bread of life. I am as essential to life as daily food. And I am the light of the world. Look at your Bibles. And that life was the light of men. And that light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome. Jesus is the light of the world. And if you do not know him, the Bible says two things about you repeatedly. One, you are dead. You are spiritually dead. And if you die without knowing Jesus, you will experience a second death, which is eternal separation from God which means that for all eternity, you will be left in darkness. Jesus offers you life and he offers you light today. Turn away from your sin, 
away from whatever philosophy tells you that there is another way to be made right. There's another way to be truly alive and turn to Jesus and experience abundant life and light. And here's what's amazing about Jesus. Verse 14, we're going to unpack this later in our series. The word became flesh. Going back to the Logos, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. All things were created through him and not one thing was created without him. And the word became flesh, flesh, he dwelt among us. We have a art display. If you look back and you see the, the stations of the cross, if you uh, look at what we've been promoting on social media is this, this beautiful uh, display of, of things that's wrapped, wood that is wrapped, and it's wrapped with imitation gold. Um, and you can read online about uh, the artist and, and what it means. But, you know, I had an emotional response as we were planning this series, and Michael Winters uh, showed me this artwork that this, uh, that this woman created about the incarnation. And the first time I saw it, I teared up. And I, I told a friend of mine, I'm like, man, I should go and get some care, some counseling done because it was so emotive. And before I even read what it was about, this idea that this imitation gold was just kind of wrapping um, whatever was, was, was in it. And it just was a great uh, illustration of, of Jesus and how he put on flesh and all this divinity was wrapped in human skin. And it says, and he dwelt among us. This word dwelt uh, uh, points us back to the Old Testament and how God was amongst his people as the tabernacle. And the tabernacle represented the very presence of God. He was with his people. And the tabernacle was a place where the people of God can experience the glory of God in a very palpable and real way. And, and John is saying that Jesus pitched his tent among us. And this is what separates Christianity from every other religion and every other philosophy. It teaches that God, the God of this universe, put on human flesh, he pitched a tent. And he didn't pitch like a, 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 a shady tent. He pitched a good tent, like an Eddie Bauer tent, a, a, a great tent amongst us. He wrapped himself in flesh. He subjugated himself, though he is God, to the human experience, to loss and grief and diarrhea and headaches and betrayal. He was mocked by the very people he created. He was whipped, had a crown of thorns placed on his head. He died being choked by his own blood. He had to watch his mother watch him die in nudity, in shame, in embarrassment. And he did this, not for some abstract reason, and not for people who had it all together. He did this for you and for me so that we might be forgiven of sin, so that we might be set free from fear, the fear of not measuring up, the fear of not fitting in, from shame, the shame of our sin, the shame for, of our, our narratives, the, the shame of our brokenness. 
and from guilt. And he did this so that we could know life both eternally and abundantly now. I know this pandemic is hard. Some of you are grieving on the inside because you lost loved ones, lost perhaps a job, won't be able to see your family members, your, your grandmother, your, 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 your mother, your father for the first time in your adult life. You're tired of watching online, not being able to take communion. You're afraid because you have someone that you love that's in high risk or a child. And you're saying, God, do you see me? Lord, are you with me? And Jesus today is saying, yes, I pitched my tent on earth over 2,000 years ago so that you can know that I'm not, I'm not sleeping on the job but that I am willing to enter into the brokenness of humanity for you. And not only 2,000 years ago, but my spirit has pitched his tent in the church and I am indwelling you now. I am able to give you comfort in your grief, comfort in your loneliness, comfort in your weariness. Because of Jesus, a weary world rejoices Because of Jesus in our waiting, we have hope. Because of Jesus in our waiting, we we can know that we're loved. Because of Jesus in our waiting, we can have a peace that passes all understanding. Because of Jesus, we can experience a joy that those without him do not know. And And a light that empowers us and emboldens us to tell them that there has been a cure. For the greatest pandemic that ever hit the earth, which was separation and alienation from God. And this cure is better than a vaccine because all of us, all of us are sick. Vaccines are taken, so the vaccination we take in order to prevent getting something. The Bible says that we all were born into iniquity and shaped by our sin. And what God did for us through Jesus Christ was not give us something to prevent us from, uh, from, from falling ill. He gave us a cure for our illness. So that as we look back at our past sins, we can hear God say, you are forgiven. You are free. And as we struggle with sin in the present, we can hear God say, You are more than a conqueror. You are forgiven. And today I invite you to meditate on those truths and to know that Jesus is Emmanuel. He is with you. We can have grit because of the gift that God gave us. We can unpack this gift and marvel at Jesus' supremacy. The one who is preexistent, the one who is present, the one who has not only created all things, but Colossians 1.18 says, all things are held together by him. And the one who Revelations 19 and 13 calls the word, John calls the word who's coming back again to make all things right. Because of Jesus, we have hope that trouble doesn't last always. Because of Jesus, We know that there will come a day and there will come a time where we never again have to 
wear masks or fear cancer, arthritis, sickle cell, dementia, amnesia. Because he will usher in his perfect kingdom where there is no more tears, no more depression, no more need of medication, and no more sin, no more loneliness. Because in him we will be perfectly fulfilled. And this should encourage us to be obedient now. This should encourage us to be faithful in our abiding in Christ. This should encourage us to live on mission for him and not just survive this pandemic, but to know that he can empower us to thrive. Every Sunday, we take communion together. Communion, when we're in our regular rhythm, we would take each week to remind ourselves of the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus. For those of you at home, I know you're waiting and longing to have this meal with us. We long and we wait to have it with you as well. For those of you who are present, let's take this wafer and remember that Jesus understands. He knows pain. He knows discomfort. We have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us in our weakness because he became one of us. And even now he's sitting on the right hand of God wrapped in flesh. He didn't lay aside his flesh when he died and and become a in-body spirit, but he continues to subjugate himself to the human experience so that you can know that he knows. Let's drink all of it. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.